1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. This, the saying is trustworthy, is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer might be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, nor quarrelsome, nor a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Thank you. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Leviticus. We're going to be picking up midway through chapter 6 today. You can find our scripture reading on page 84 if you're using the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. And I'm really excited to be resuming our study in Leviticus. Um, More that I've read it and looking forward, I just eagerly anticipate the Lord speaking to us every week from a book that for many of us might be a little bit unexpected to hear uh, a relevant message of hope uh, from. But as we've seen from the beginning, that's what Leviticus offers. Us. Leviticus really aims at the heart, uh, the heart of our deepest longings and all of our, our hopes and our desires. Leviticus speaks to all of them. It's not just a bunch of rules. It's, it's the pathway to God. The book opens with a stunning picture of worship. We hear of five different appointed sacrifices that enable the people to come into the presence of God. And, and that in it of itself is worth a, a shout of praise. Because after generations of being excluded from God's presence, being uh, unable to enjoy his presence because of our sin and our shame, Leviticus tells us this blessed news that God's made a way. God has made a way for us to come back into his presence and enjoy him through sacrifice. And that's what we see as the book opens, these five appointed sacrifices where the people are giving themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord, and the Lord responds by giving himself to them. It's a wonderful picture of worship, a beautiful picture of the ideal worshiping community where both God and people are enjoying each other. Again, it's a rich celebration of grace that we see in Leviticus, and it just points us forward to Jesus Christ, the final way, ultimate way to God, the final and ultimate sacrifice for our sin. So we, we expect good things out of the book of Leviticus. We've been primed to hear the word of God address us and our longings and our hopes. But now as we reach the middle of chapter 6, we might wonder if the relevance of Leviticus has run out. Uh, We are going to hear this morning in our passage 30-something verses that are addressed directly to the priests. Uh, They are covering the same five sacrifices that we've heard about already, that we've already studied, and they primarily talk about what the priests can and cannot eat. And so we're going to be tempted to wonder, how is this not just a bunch of rules? How is this actually relevant for us? 
Well, as it turns out, it's fantastically relevant for us. In our day and age, church membership and church participation is on the decline, and everyone, uh, everyone in our uh, building, everyone in our city, everyone in our society, pastors, uh, down to, uh, to, to people who are even just considering the Christian faith, every single person feels a temptation to disengage. Uh, to pull back from the formal things of the church, to rebrand, to rethink. Pastors wonder if their work matters when there are tons of great preachers online and dwindling numbers in the pews. Congregants wonder if their presence at church matters when they can get what they want from the internet uh, or maybe even get what they want from the local gym. Everyone realizes the cost of commitment in a church, and everyone at some level begins to wonder, what's the point? Does it matter if I'm here? Does my contribution, does my presence actually matter? Does it make a difference? Leviticus chapter six and seven offers us a refreshing and a convicting word. Your contribution to worship is vital. Your contribution to worship is absolutely necessary, so stay engaged at all costs. That beautiful picture of worship, that that portrait of, of people experiencing the presence of God that Leviticus opens up with, it, it only happens when priests and people worked together. In other words, faithful worship is an all-hands-on-deck thing, and your participation and my participation is not optional. Every single one of us has a part to play in the church's encounter with the most holy God. And this that we're about to experience is a better vision. It's a better story of worship, and we need to hear it. And we need to heed it if we are going to faithfully and fully experience God together. So, brothers and sisters, with that in mind, let's turn our attention to God's word for us. This is Leviticus chapter 6. I'm picking up in verse 8, and I'm going to be reading through chapter 7, verse 10. This is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses. And let me just pause there and say, that's how we know it's the word of God. Uh, Because Leviticus is constantly saying the Lord spoke. And so we can hear even now God's words to his people. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garments and put his linen undergarment on his body and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. 
And this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it, Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is the thing most holy, like the sin and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is the offering that Aaron and his sons shall offer to the Lord on the day when he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning, half of it in the evening. It shall be made with oil on a griddle. You shall bring it well mixed in baked pieces like a grain offering and offer it for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The priests, or the priest from among Aaron's sons who is anointed to succeed him shall offer it to the Lord as decreed forever. The whole of it shall be burned. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it is splashed in the holy place. And the earthenware vessel in which it, and the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. But if it is boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It is most holy. But no sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be burned up with fire. This is the law of the guilt offering. It is most holy. In the place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering. And its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. And all its fat shall be offered. The fat tail, the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Every male among the priests may eat of it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The guilt offering is just like the sinner offering. There is one law for them. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers any man's burnt offering shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering that he has offered. And every grain offering baked in the oven and all that is prepared on a pan or a griddle shall belong to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering mixed with oil or dry shall be shared equally among all the sons of Aaron. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these instructions that give us a glimpse into how you want worship to work. In particular, how you want the worshiping community to operate in each of our respective roles. And so I pray now that as we look into this word uh, that is, is strange to our ears, we're not used to manuals for sacrifice and for portions for the priests to eat. We're not used to this. And so I pray that through your spirit, you would illuminate it to our hearts so that we would be able to trust that even this word is good for us. It's food for us. It's edifying for us. This word is living and active even now, inspecting our hearts and guiding us into truth. So bless us, we pray, through your spirit now, in the name of Christ. Amen. So in Leviticus, faithful worship requires the entire community to be faithful together. That's really the goal of this passage that we just read. The goal of this passage is to propel all of us to faithfully give ourselves into the worshiping community, taking up our unique roles in it so that we all can delight in God together. To begin with, as we hear in this passage, faithful worship requires faithful priests. Faithful worship requires faithful priests. The priests were absolutely essential to Old Testament worship. Uh, Mark has mentioned it already. The priests were the intermediaries between God and the people. The priests offered the sacrifices of the people to God, and the priest offered the message of forgiveness back to the people. If the priests were unfaithful in any of their duties, then the people were unable to enjoy God's blessing. As we hear throughout the scriptures, it was a terrible thing for the people when the priests were unfaithful in their work. And so that's why God speaks directly to the priests in this passage. Verse 8, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command Aaron and his sons. So God has turned his attention away from the entire worshiping community. And now he's speaking directly to the priests. And here's what we learn. In order for the priests to be faithful... The priests needed to be holy. The priests needed to be holy. Holiness is a major theme throughout the book of Leviticus, and it's a major theme even in this passage. You heard the word holy at least 11 times as we were reading it together, and the concept of holiness is everywhere in this passage. God is holy. He is set apart. He is completely pure. And so everything that belongs to our holy God must also be holy. It needs to be also set apart, consecrated, purified, and treated with care. And so the priests who belong to God and who steward the things that belong to God, these priests must be holy. The priest must diligently pursue holiness in every single aspect of their lives. Just listen to verses 10 and 11. The priest shall put on his linen garment and put on his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has reduced the burnt offering in the altar and put them beside the altar... Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. Or we can look at verse 17. It is a thing most 
holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Verse 18, whoever touches them shall become holy. Or as the New King James Version puts it, everyone who touches them must be holy. Or let's look down a little bit further. Verses 26 through 28, the priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten, in the court of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches its flesh shall be holy, and when any of its blood is splashed on a garment, you shall wash that on which it's splashed in a holy place. The earthenware vessel, the clay pots, if you boiled it in a clay pot, you needed to break it afterwards. You couldn't reuse it. If it was in a bronze vessel, then after you used it to boil this holy offering, you had to wash it out before you could use it. Uh, Holiness is all over the place here. The main refrain of those verses that I just read is, keep holy things holy. Keep holy things holy. Put on the holy clothing before you approach to try and clean up the holy altar. Keep holy clothing in a holy place. Eat holy food in a holy place. Keep holy things for holy use. Only touch holy things if you are holy. In other words, the message to the priests, guard holiness. Pursue holiness in every aspect of your lives. Steward the holiness of God through everything that you do. The priests were to devote themselves completely to God's ways and demonstrate that holiness in every aspect of their life so that they could continue to faithfully serve God and serve the people. Also, in addition to pursuing holiness, in order to be faithful, the priests needed to focus on forgiveness. They needed to focus on forgiveness. It's it's really profound. When you read this passage, you get the sense that the priest's time was entirely consumed with proclaiming forgiveness to the people. If there was a take your dad to school day in ancient Israel and a priest showed up in your classroom to talk about how his day goes, here's what he would talk about his work. He would say, I constantly tell people that they're forgiven. I constantly tell people about God's grace. It's all over this passage. Verse nine, command Aaron and his sons saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. Verse 12, the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. Verse 13, fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually it shall not go out. If you remember from chapter one, the burnt offering brought atonement, which Mark has told us already. It's about the unification of God with his people. The burnt offering brought atonement. And so when the smoke from the burnt offering rose up into the heavens, the worshiper knew that he or she was forgiven. Seeing the smoke rise up from that offering meant that you were accepted by God. The smoke visibly communicated grace. And so feel the weight of these instructions to the priests. God is saying, don't let the fires of forgiveness go out. 
Don't let the people ever wonder if they're accepted before God. Make sure that the people can see grace every day. The tabernacle was in the middle of the camp. You could see it wherever you were in the people of Israel. And so if you were out in the field and you just started wondering, does God actually really accept me? Or if you were at home and you had a guilty conscience because of something that you had done or something that you had said and you just wondered in, in kind of sadness, do, do God's promises really apply to me personally? All you needed to do was to find the tabernacle. All you needed to do was to look to the tabernacle and there you would see a great big plume of smoke constantly rising to the heavens, constantly being a fragrant offering to the Lord. When you saw that smoke, you would be able to say, oh, thank the Lord. He accepts us. He is still for us. His presence is with us. His mercies are new every single day. The priests labored to offer grace to the people all of the time. Verse 16, verse 29, chapter 7, verse 6, eat the grain offering, eat the sin offering, eat the guilt offering in the presence of the worshiper. Why? It's because when the priest ate the offering, the worshiper knew that the offering was acceptable to God. And so when you saw the priest take your offering up to your lips or up to, up to his lips, then you would be able to breathe a deep sigh of relief. You might have just confessed some major sin, some ugly reality of your life to God and to the priest. And so when the priest took a bite of your offering, you knew that you were forgiven. You could breathe a deep sigh of relief that you were still accepted. You could say, I am forgiven. I'm accepted by God. Chapter 7, verse 2. In the holy place where they kill the burnt offering, they shall kill the guilt offering, and its blood shall be thrown against the sides of the altar. That would be buckets of blood, buckets of blood covering the entire altar as a visual sign that God's grace covered all of your sin. All of your sin was taken care of. All of your sin was cleansed because all of the altar was covered in that blood. Every single action of the priest communicated grace to the people. The priests were consumed constantly to offer forgiveness to the people. And finally, in order to be faithful, the priests also needed to depend on grace. The priests needed to depend on grace. Let's be honest, ministry is hard spiritual work. And when you're constantly ministering God's grace to other people, it's really easy for your own soul to become hardened for you to become complacent, for you to become prideful, uh, for your soul to become bogged down by discouragements. In ministry, in public ministry like this, you make mistakes and you see the reality of sin and it weighs on you. And so God told the priests, you need to depend on grace. That's in verses 19 through 23. God commands the priests to make their own grain offering. And so twice a day, Every single day, both morning and evening, the priests paused to rededicate themselves to God. 
That's what the grain offering was about. It was a dedication offering saying to the Lord, you are my king. And the priests couldn't eat any of this. Uh, This wasn't like a special snack for privileged priests. The whole thing was their personal offering to God. It was a personal gift to God, a daily, continual reminder that they needed grace too, and that God was happy to give it to them. And so now you can see why faithful worship required faithful priests. Faithful worship required faithful priests. They were God's holy instruments of grace for the people. But that's only half of the story. It quickly becomes apparent that faithful priests require faithful people. Faithful priests require faithful people. I've worked at Starbucks twice in my life. I've gone through the training modules twice. Uh, And in the training, one of the first things that they do is to teach you how to handle the morning rush. Before you even touch a machine, uh, you have been trained to handle the pressure uh, when the line for coffee goes out the door. And so you're well trained, but none of that matters if no one shows up to get coffee, right? It doesn't matter how well trained you are, if there is no one there to get coffee, you cannot do your job. And that's how it is here with the priests. The priests needed faithful people to join them in worship so that they could lead in worship. In order to be faithful, the people needed to pursue holiness. The people also needed to pursue holiness. All of these laws presuppose that people are bringing sacrifices to the Lord. And let's just remember what these sacrifices did. The burnt offering brought atonement for sin. The grain offering, as we talked about, was an act of personal dedication to the Lord. The guilt offering made restitution for the debt of sin. The uh, sin offering brought cleansing from the pollution of sin. Every single one of these offerings that we hear about in our text is a cry from the heart. Some faithful worshiper has come to the tent of meeting with a longing in his or her heart, make me holy. Make me holy, O God. The ideal worshiper in Israel craved holiness. That's what faithfulness looks like for the people. Leviticus 11.44, be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. Faithful people needed to pursue holiness. And in order to be faithful, the faithful people also needed to support the priests. The people needed to support the priests. It's no coincidence that the bulk of these verses deal with what the priests could or could not eat. In ancient Israel, the priests didn't own their own land. They didn't farm because God wanted them to dedicate themselves 100% to their holy work of grace And that meant that the priests and their families depended 100% on the people's offerings. Without regular offerings, the priests would get hungry. They would leave the tabernacle to go make a living elsewhere. And that's exactly what happened in the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, the people did not support the priests, and so the priests left. And it was a national crisis. Just imagine what would happen if all of the priests left the tabernacle. Without the priests, who would steward the holy flame of forgiveness? Without the priests present, who would help repentant sinners find grace? Now we can imagine the people resenting 
giving food away to the priests. They might think to themselves, you know, I worked really hard in the fields for this. Why am I just going to give away this food to the priests? We could imagine the people holding themselves back. And so God says over and over again in this text, let the priests eat. Don't begrudge the priests taking some of the sacrificial meat or some of the sacrificial grain. Don't begrudge when the priest takes the animal skin. In fact, happily support the priests. Support the priests because in doing so, the people became God's instruments of grace for the priests. God had told the priests, and we hear about it in this passage, God told the priests that he would take care of them. And he did that through the sacrifices of the people. And so you, now you can see why faithful priests required faithful people. They were partners together in worship. Without faithful people, tabernacle worship ceased. And so everyone had a role to play. Everyone's presence mattered. That's the lesson for us in Leviticus chapter 6 and 7. Worship is a community affair. So play your part faithfully, priests. Offer God's salvation to the people. People, offer God's sustenance to the priests. Pursue holiness together. Depend on God's grace together. That's what a holy nation does. That's what a kingdom of priests looks like. And when the people did this alongside of the priests, then they, as this kingdom of priests, could then do the same thing for the world offering the hope of salvation to the nations around. Faithfulness in worship has far-reaching effects for the kingdom of God. And so this vision of a holistic worshiping community is profoundly dignifying and hopeful. Worship requires priests and people working together with whole hearts to glorify God. And so what does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? Well, it means the same thing for us, actually, as it did for them. This passage calls us to faithfulness in worship. Of course, the focus of our worship has shifted. These days, our worship is not about bringing sacrifices to the altar. Our worship is about enjoying the sacrifice that's been accomplished for us already. Our worship is enjoying Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the death for, uh, sacrifice on the cross for us, his atoning death that forgives us for our sins, that cleanses us, that cancels out the debt of sin. In Christ, the flames of forgiveness never go out. Our great high priest never forgets to tend the altar. Hebrews 7:25. He always lives to make intercession for his people. Nowadays, you don't have to look for a plume of smoke in the sky to confirm your salvation. You just need to listen to God's word. As it says to you in 1 Peter 1, 23, you have been born again. Brothers and sisters, you're forgiven. God's word tells you that you are saints through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the focus of our worship has shifted but the pattern of our worship hasn't. The pattern of our worship is exactly the same. Faithful worship still requires faithful spiritual leaders. This passage is a message to us who are in leadership at Christ Church, elders of Christ Church. 
This is a mandate for us. We must pursue personal holiness twice. In the New Testament, Paul says that an overseer must be above reproach. God calls us to live lives of holiness, demonstrating our commitment to God through lives of character and integrity and sacrificial love. Brothers, God calls us to constantly proclaim the grace of Christ. We can never lose sight of the fact that our main role is to build up this group of people in grace. Of course, there's all kinds of other responsibilities that come with being an elder, but but we have one main thing to do, is to insist on grace. Every single one of us elders is to preach the gospel constantly. Constantly offering grace to the people of Christ's church so that every single member is convinced of his or her forgiveness. If someone comes to you with a heavy heart, be ready to proclaim forgiveness so that that worshiper can breathe a sigh of relief and to say, thank God, I'm forgiven. Praise God, I am accepted. Brothers, We must do this. We must constantly proclaim forgiveness. Of course, we're imperfect. In ministry, we are going to make mistakes. And so elders of Christ's church, God calls us to rely on his grace for our work. Brothers, we need to drink deeply of the same grace that we offer to our people. Because when we're convinced that God forgives us of our very great sins then we are able to offer grace to others without judgment. That's our call. Faithful worship requires faithful spiritual leaders. But we can't do this alone, friends. Faithful spiritual leaders require faithful people. So to you, uh, the dear members of Christ Church of Arlington, God has a calling for you. Uh, This passage speaks a word of encouragement to you this morning. God calls you to pursue holiness. God wants you to pursue holiness in all of your lives. 1 Peter 1.15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. And so come to church. Come to church ready to worship, ready to sing, ready to pray, ready to receive God's word as it's given to you. Come hungry, ready to be fed, expecting to be fed, hungry for holiness. So pursue holiness together. And then God calls you to support the spiritual leaders of this church. There's a support that you need to offer us. Of course, there's a financial portion of that, like it was for the priests, but I don't really want to dwell on that. I really want to focus on the spiritual support that the people of God offer to the leadership of the church. I'm just going to tell you plainly, if you do not pray for us, our ministry will suffer. Uh, Our ministry is carried on the wings of your prayer. Let's remember Paul's constant request. Paul, throughout the epistles, is not always asking for money. He rarely is. He's hardly ever asking for material support. He is constantly asking for spiritual support. 
It's, it's all over his letters. Colossians 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 3, Ephesians 6. Paul says, pray for us. Pray for us that a door would be opened for ministry. Pray for us that we would be able to faithfully proclaim God's word as we should. Pray for us that we would be delivered from evil. And so I say to you, uh, and I ask you, pray for us. Please pray for us. Pray for us that we would be able to proclaim the gospel of grace clearly and boldly. Pray for us that we would be faithful. Pray for me. I need your prayers. You can pray for me on Saturday nights. You can pray for me on Sunday morning. I need it. We need it. We need your support. We need each other. And so let's be faithful together. Let's take up this call, trusting that when we play our own parts, we will experience God together. Hear this clearly. You matter. Your participation matters. So don't hold yourself back. When I was in eighth grade, I had the privilege of being the first chair trumpet player uh, in middle school band. Uh, Greatly helped by the kid who was definitely better than me moving to California that summer. Uh, So I enjoyed that privilege for a while, but then the next year was a different story. By then I was in high school. I was surrounded by many talented musicians. I was maybe 13th chair out of uh, 20 or so trumpet players. So I had gone from the top uh, to pretty close to the bottom. And I enjoyed myself, I had a good time with my friends, but I couldn't shake the feeling that my presence didn't really matter. That my contribution wasn't really all that important. And it's really easy to get discouraged when you feel that way. It's really easy to disengage when you feel like your presence doesn't matter. Maybe you felt like that before. Maybe you felt like that on a sports team. Maybe you feel like that on a work team. Maybe you feel like that in your family. God does not want you to feel that way about church. Every one of you has a role to play, a vital role to play in this worshiping community. Your presence matters, so keep it up. Keep it up so that we can offer each other tangible expressions of God's grace. Keep it up so that we can continue to build each other through our mutual service. As we do these things, we will know Christ and we will experience the Spirit, and then together we will become, as 1 Peter 2 says, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, able to together offer God's mercies of salvation to the watching world around us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this call. It's a gracious call to serve you. We're certainly unworthy of it. Uh, But it's also a convicting call. Uh, We see in our own lives ways that each of us have been tempted to pull back from our responsibilities in worship, and we repent. Uh, We do come to you now looking for grace, craving holiness. Make us like Christ, we pray. Give us the Holy Spirit so that we could do our part in worship and become this spiritual people filled with the Holy Spirit. 
again, able to offer forgiveness to the world around. Lord, please dwell in us and help us to identify ways that we have pulled back. Help us to confess those things and enable us, uh, ennoble us even, to see our dignity by being an important part of your worship. Give us this grace, and we thank you for this wonderful calling. And we ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen.